0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com
1: Three brothers named Franklin, Emmett, and Bill are together in prison for a failed case of rail robbery in Oklahoma. Their plan had been to make off with all the packages from a U.S. post office mail car, which they reasoned would have some expensive merchandise on the way to the West. Instead, they got tracked down by U.S. marshals and sentenced to 30 years in a federal penitentiary. On the one-year anniversary of their incarceration, the prison gets a new warden. This warden, everybody says, is a soft-hearted, academic, social scientist type. And instead of harsh punishments, he brings in new accommodations for the prisoners. Uh, One is a newly stocked library and a collection of board games. How sweet. One day, Bill, the youngest of the brothers, brings his brothers a spirit board from the board game card. He suggests they use it to ask how they can escape the prison, laughing. The older brother, Franklin, balks at this otherworldly nonsense, but Bill convinces them to play, and so the three brothers put their hands on the plancha of the spirit board. After several minutes of asking questions and getting no answers, the plancha begins to move, ever so slowly at first, but then gaining speed, and it spells, I want to talk to Bill. So, Franklin laughs, but Bill is dead serious. He takes the board away in the corner by himself and spends the rest of the day with it. The next morning out in the yard, Bill is shot by guards while trying to climb over the fence. Stupid, Franklin says. Why would Bill have thought he could make it? A month goes by. Emmett, the middle brother, brings the spirit board back, and he suggests they use it to see if they can contact Bill to ask him why he did such a stupid thing. They do. Emmett speaks to the air. Franklin sits quietly. After several minutes of nothing, the plancha finally starts to move. It spells, I want to talk to Emmett. Emmett takes the board by himself to the corner and spends the rest of the day playing with it in silence. The next morning, Emmett has wall-cleaning duty on the guard towers, and in the middle of this, he tries to jump from the tower over the fence and breaks his neck. It was so high, why would he have thought he could survive? Immediately afterward, Franklin goes to the prison library and retrieves the spirit board for himself. He takes it to a quiet corner. He says, "'What have you been telling my brothers?' The plancha under his fingers begins to move, and unfortunately, that's all there is of the story. Hey,
0: welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb, and I'm Joe McCormick. What happens next? <laughs> How can we leave it there? The, 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 just the ragged ends of a story, We're bleeding all over the place. What are we supposed to do? It, uh, it leaves us hungry for more, Joe. Uh, so I, I wrote that story. So that may have been a horrible story,
1: but uh, I, I was trying to inflict the pain mm-hmm. that people feel when there is a story that's set up that is not completed. Mm-hmm. I know we all have this experience. You, you ever have one of those great uh, TV shows that gets one season going, everybody likes it, and then it gets canceled, and you never know what what was going to happen?
0: Yeah, um, I. I- I seem to recall having the same experience with um, Stephen King's Golden Years back in the day. I, remember ah, I don't know what that is. It was uh, like a, a TV show that he did about this guy that was uh, getting older or getting younger. It's been a long time. But they had the David Bowie song as the theme song, and uh, it just it did not do well, and it did not get picked up. And I have no idea what happened, uh, and I never will. Wow. Yeah. It's a horrible feeling. Yeah, I mean even if the material's not that good, you it sticks with you. You you want to follow it through. You want to have the complete experience of that story. Right. So this episode we're going to do today is about the
1: concept of incompleteness and unfinished ideas in art, in science, and in psychology in general. Uh, but this was actually inspired by a couple of events that you attended when you were recently in New York City. I think we were actually in New York City around the same time. It was the same, the same week,
0: yeah, separately. And um, you. I think you left right before I arrived, uh-huh. and we didn't actually realize that, that this was happening <laughs> But uh but yeah I was uh I was in uh, New York for the World Science Festival. Uh, which I try to attend uh, at least uh, every couple of years. Mm-hmm. And uh, I uh, I attended a fabulous discussion titled To Unweave a Rainbow, Science and the Essence of Being Human. And uh, I, by the time this publishes, I believe the video is actually available for everyone else. I'll make sure that we include a link to it on the uh, landing page for this episode. Uh, and I also attended a wonderful exhibit at the Metropolitan Museum of Art titled The Unfinished, Thoughts left visible.
1: This is crazy because when I was in New York, I I went to the Met, but Mm -hmm. I did not see this exhibit, and that drives me crazy. Not only because I was unable to finish seeing everything at the museum, and thus my museum experience is left incomplete, an Mm -hmm. unfinished task, but also because this exhibit sounds really
0: cool. Oh yes, indeed, it's um it it features a features a vast gallery of incomplete works. by a number of just really famous artists, and each uh, work exposes something of the artist's process, uh, the the realities of the artistic process, and something of the the, the timescape in which each one was produced. So um, it, yeah, it's a fascinating uh, exhibit. It's as as of this publication date, it's still ongoing through most of this year. So if you're in New York or you're making it up that way, go check it out. But also the uh, the online presence for the exhibit is is pretty strong as well. Any piece that we mention here. And all the ones that we we do not mention, they are all viewable uh, at the Mets' website. Cool. Uh, so I guess this episode is probably going to be a little bit looser than... Many of them. Uh, yeah, that's the way I'm kind of envisioning it. Uh, that it's going to be more sort of back and forth and just talking about ideas here, because both experiences, both the World Science Festival panel uh, and the exhibit at the Met, uh, really got me thinking about the nature of incompleteness and finished, unfinished works in the human experience. So yeah, I thought we'd dive uh, dive into the topic a bit here um, and just see where it takes us. Uh, we'll we will get to some more uh, you know sort of scientific uh, material towards the end in mm-hmm. case. In case everything feels a little too loosey-goosey to you, all right. So here we are. Let's talk a little bit about uh, human obsessions with completeness and the sort of unfinished nature of our lives. It's kind of a weird paradox, isn't it?
1: Yeah. Why is it that it drove me crazy when I was in New York at the same time I was going to museums? Mm-hmm. I went to the Brooklyn Museum, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and the, uh, the American Natural History Museum, uh, all fantastic. At the Met and the Natural History Museum, I was not able to see everything in the museum in a day. Yeah, they're gigantic and, museums. And that drove me crazy. Mm-hmm. I, I felt like I was going insane because I was like, ah, I've spent a whole day here. I haven't even gotten through half of it. Uh, but if I had gone to a museum that was composed entirely of only the things I was able to see at those museums, that would have been... A, a wonderful experience. Yeah. It was just the knowledge that
0: I hadn't finished it. I, I mean, I even find that towards the end, even the stuff that I have time to to look at and try to absorb, by the end of my, my visit, I ha- I'm feeling enough of a cognitive drain that I know that I'm not properly uh, assimilating all the information. So really, I, I need to always make it a point to just hit the stuff that's most interesting to me first and pray that i don't run across something even more interesting later in the visit. Mhm. Especially on the way out when you have no time to see it at all. Yeah. So part of this is of course just uh, just you know it, as far as the broader human experience goes is just a quest for like a, an understanding of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you want to know where you are. You want to know what's around the corner. And in a larger sense, you want a concise cosmology. We want to know where we came from, where we're going. We want to know how the world works and how we can exploit that information to better carry out uh, all those uh, biological objectives that we have mandated in our genes.
1: But, of course, we can't know all that. Right. We're never going to know everything. Yeah. I we mean- can
0: fool ourselves into thinking we know all the necessary information at any given time, such as what are the main exhibits we want to see at the Met, but then we turn a corner on our way out and we realize there was something we wanted to see uh, and we just didn't know it was there. Uh, but that same kind of obsession with having
1: a complete picture or complete view that comes in in art, too, what's that old expression? Who is it who said that uh, You know, uh, poems or novels, maybe whatever it is, they're, they're never really finished. They're only abandoned.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's... And that's I think that's an accurate uh, statement to bring up. Yeah, you even even a work like that, which is a contained work, a self-contained universe in many senses with a definite beginning, middle and end. Uh, even those are arguably all incomplete Um and of course all of the, any of this is completely out of step with our experience of reality. Our lives are in a constant state of incompleteness. You know, we're all half-finished stories, our relationships, our values, our beliefs, they're constantly in flux and we have this this maddening or, you know, empowering depending on how you look at it, ability to believe in multiple things that totally contradict each other. So, as much as we crave a complete narrative, as much as we crave a complete cosmology, our own inner experience is just a jumble that at best we're able to uh, to, to sort of deceive ourselves into thinking of as part of a, a more complete
1: work. Okay, so how does this tie? I can see how it ties into the uh, the Met exhibit with unfinished works of art. But how does this tie into the discussion you saw at the World Science Festival?
0: Okay, so the, the, the talk in question was uh, to unweave a rainbow. Science and the Essence of Being Human. And it featured a three-way discussion between physicist Brian Greene, who's also one of the founders of uh, World Science Festival, neuroscientist Miguel Nicolelis, and writer Leon Weaseltier. Weaseltier. So their, their conversation wove in and out of this very notion of basically... With a focus on on science mm-hmm. and non scientific understanding, sort of science and religion, science and philosophy, mm-hmm. talking about each one's ability to try and create a complete picture, or even just to go after a complete picture of what the universe is, what the human experience is. Weaseltier, in particular took up the uh, the, the more the pro-religion, pro religion uh, pro philosophy mm-hmm. argument here, um, and he just mentioned fuzzy methods. Yeah, yeah, and he brought it up, you know, basically, and it's saying that you know this is this is the best way to trump. What is the best way to trump uncertainty in our lives? Mm-hmm. You know, we have science and we have religion. Uh, we need to feel that our lives are an outcome of something, so we want to turn to something that has a complete answer. Uh-huh. But of course, there's we run into obvious problems there. Right. Uh, First, let's take science, right? Yeah. Um, Science, as we understand it on the show, and I think as most listeners understand it, is not a complete understanding of the universe. I think one of the
1: quickest ways you can tell someone is not scientifically literate is when they say something like, Oh, scientists think that that science gives you all the answers. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that is not what science is about. It is, in fact, always uncertainty. Uh, and anybody who thinks like that probably doesn't interact with science very much.
0: Right, uh, and. And uh, Weaselteer put a, a nice little um, summary over this discuss- by discussing it in terms of science and vulgar science, saying mm-hmm. that you know real science is questing after the answers and is inherently incomplete, whereas vulgar science is more of this sort of idea of science, this bumper sticker um, "I love science" level of scientific understanding where. It's really more like a re- religious understanding of science. Right, it's As just
1: dogmas. Science yeah. says we know X rather yeah. than uh, thinking
0: about the method itself. Right. But then, in terms of religion, he he makes a distinction between religion and vulgar religion. The idea here being that just as vulgar science believes that science has all the answers and shouldn't be questioned, and is this you know bumper sticker understanding of it, mm-hmm. you also have this version of religion that thinks, oh well, it's it's written on a tablet somewhere. It's all taken care of. It's all explained. Whereas, you know, it. it at, at higher levels of, of most faiths, you're going to encounter a lot more consideration. There's, a, I mean, that when you get into theological discussions of how this model of faith interacts with. The human experience and with our daily lives, it's going to be a little more nuanced and particularly and, and possibly changing. This is weasel weasel tears. Yes, idea. this is weasel tears. Yeah. Idea.
1: So that uh, religion also has a sort of quest for meaning version that that leaves a sort of radical openness in the same way science does.
0: Yeah, radical openness. I think that's a that's that's a, a good way to put it. Yeah. Uh, so so I really liked his argument that you can find that radical openness on both sides. Mm-hmm. Um. Now, uh, as far as art goes, there there was actually some direct uh, references to art in this talk. Um, uh, Miguel uh, Nicolelis, who uh, who is a very uh, interesting neuroscientist, by the way, involved in a number of different uh, um, uh, projects that involve uh, using an exoskeleton device yeah. to assist uh, severely paralyzed patients. I imagine he's come I've, up in your work before. Yes,
1: I've read about him uh, with uh, with uh, uh, mind computer interfaces.
0: Yeah. So he's a, he's a great guy to hear talk about sort of the <laughs> limits of the human mind. Sorry, more accurately, I should say
1: brain-computer interface. Uh, yeah, oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, with mind, you get into different territory.
0: Yeah, and in this discussion, uh, Nicolais is definitely taking more the, the brain approach, and uh, and uh, Weaselteer is more of the, the mind spokesman, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, Nicolais brings up the, this idea that, that art was once very precise. So you go, you're go you going through the Met or any art museum. You're looking at the older pieces and what, not the Really old pieces, but um, you know, so certainly Renaissance uh, work. You're it's seeing, all
1: representative.
0: Yeah, you're seeing very, almost photographic paintings of what people look like. Uh, people, The artists are trying to create an image of the world as everyone else sees it, mm-hmm. a universal truth, right? But then we reach this point when artists uh, want to paint their own experiences of something rather than the universal experience of the thing. Um, so uh you get into these uh, areas such as uh um uh, oh, well, one, one specific example that, that was brought up was uh, William Turner's uh, 1831 steamboat painting. I see you have a picture of this in here. I do. Yeah, and it's it it's, looks kind of like a bunch of hair going down a drain. <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, it, 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 you could say that it's definitely kind of brownish, blackish, bluish swirls with an illumination in the middle. And knowing that it's about a steamboat, you can look at it and you can see a steamboat, but it is not a. a it has no photographic clarity to it. In fact, right. it's, uh, in fact, it utilizes what is often referred to in, in art as non-finite, uh, inten- something that is intentionally unfinished. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and sometimes that's like an obvious state of unfinished, like portions of a, of a canvas are, are not filled in. But other times it's about the detail, like stuff is left vague, stuff is left without that level of photographic detail because it's more about the, um, the subjective experience of the thing as opposed to an objective truth. Yeah. Uh,
1: I like this Miguel, uh, Miguel Nicolelis quote you have in here where he says, all art is a collision of sight and conception of reality. Yeah. And you could also say it in the same way that all vision is a collision of external and internal. I mean, vision is, is part photons, but also part psychology.
0: Exactly. Yeah. So this puts an interesting spin on on uh, the the idea of incompleteness and completeness in what we experience uh, as wieseltier um, brought up as well there's there's no perfect objectivity here. there's no view from nowhere. It's all an amalgam of what comes from inside, what comes from outside uh and in this we kind of get into it reminds me a lot of Plato's theory of forms, right oh, yeah, that you have these there's an ideal version of something, say. Yeah, uh, you know, a, a, a sculpture of a woman, or a, or a, uh, or a chair, mm-hmm. or a, you know, a governmental system, whatever it, your your dream happens to be. Uh-huh. There's an ideal form that exists outside of our reality, and all we can do is quest after it, right? But we can never quite achieve it, right? All the stuff we've encountered are uh, imperfect strivings toward that ideal, right? And if so, if everything is imperfect. Um, if everything falls short of the the ideal from the realm of forms, then does it matter at w- where we stop? It's almost like if if, if whatever you do is going to be incomplete, like it, it's better to try and figure well, where is the artful level of incompleteness, you know? Yeah, like man, sometimes it's better to be uh, to keep things vague, right, than to uh, to absolutely list everything that, you know. And therefore list the things that you don't, if that makes sense.
1: Uh, yeah, but I could also see how that same embracing of incompleteness could in the wrong ecology of the mind lead to a sort of nihilism where, well, mm-hmm. what does it matter finishing anything? What does it matter attaining goals? That's true.
0: Now, from a uh, neuroscientific point, uh, Nicolay Liss, uh, he went on to point out that the the brain in all of this is not a passive decoder. Of course, obviously, yeah that that is an obsolete view. The brain is a quote self adapting complex system, and this is all built atop physics, of course. Uh, but but he pointed out that you know he he connects brains to machines for a living. That's the that's. that's Pretty much is the d- exact quote on that. Uh-huh. Uh, and there's a there's a tendency to discredit the unique aspects of human consciousness in all of this. So if you try and work with the brain as if it's a digital computer, it doesn't work. Right. What you have here is a probabilistic Turing machine, a hypercomputer that's an order above digital computers or normal Turing machine. Oh, that relates
1: to some uh, to something we talked about in our P versus NP episode with probabilistic machines versus oh, deterministic yeah. machines. Uh, all all of our computers today are deterministic machines.
0: Yeah, and so as, as such, any experience of beauty it all depends on experience. Uh, as a, as Nicholas points out, a functional brain involves exchanges at various levels. So there's no truth. There's only this just this best approximation of the truth that our minds can make. So even our our mind states are ever changing, ever evolving, and of course ever incomplete. And therefore, it makes perfect sense that that incompleteness is sometimes part of the design, as in these incomplete works of art. Well, let's take a look at some of these incomplete works of art. So
1: there are obviously a lot of different reasons that you could have a work of art that isn't finished. I mean, we're we're talking here about this non-finite technique where it's intentionally sort of left Mm -hmm. unfinished in order to convey something. But there's a lot of accidental unfinishedness too, right?
0: Yeah, and some of these are pretty obvious. Like that like you can easily imagine, oh well, this work was incomplete at the time of the artist's death. And that happens a lot. Yeah. They just don't get around to finishing it and it never gets done. Um but then other times it's they abandon it. It was just kind of a, a sketch to begin with, yeah. maybe. Uh they never intended to finish it. Other times, especially with, uh, with 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 portraits, uh there's a financial disagreement with a patron, there's a political disagreement, personal yeah agreement about
1: that mole on my lip yeah
0: <laughs> or uh, you know or, or illness or death ends up taking the um the the patron or at least the subject of the painting out of the picture and just can't picture it f- right. finish it um and it was one of the interesting things in the, the exhibit too is just how often you saw patron problems with um with artists that would go on to just be to you know complete Famous names like you wouldn't think of this individual ever having a situation where their painting is rejected like two or three times by the patron. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but it occurred. I believe that the, in in particular there was one by Gustav Klimt. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And and you just you don't think about someone saying, oh, I don't know, Gustav, this this doesn't look great. Can you take another another crack at it and then get back to me? All
1: of our listeners out there, you who are graphic designers <laughs> and have this frustrating experience over and over,
0: that's not what I want. Yeah. Take comfort in this. Yeah, you're in the company of Klimt. Yeah, no matter how how skilled you are during your life, you're going to be uh you're going to have your your work returned uh, multiple times. It's only after you you've died that everyone will take every little scrap of paper that you did a doodle on and start selling it. Now, one of
1: the uh examples you included here in our outline for for this is really interesting. I was not familiar with this painting, but I think it is gorgeous and awesome. I love it.
0: Yeah, explain this, what this is, Robert. Okay, so the the painting in question is the punishment punishment of Marseilles, also known as the flaying of uh, Marseilles, by Italian late Renaissance uh, artist Titian. And I, I had seen this one before because it's grisly, and yeah. uh, that tends to be my main entry point into. Classical works of art as if they're violent and weird, and this one has like a number of uh, of uh, fawns and satyrs standing yeah. around, and so, somebody being there's they're inverted and they're being yeah. flayed alive.
1: So Marsyas is actually a satyr, right? He's yep. supposed to be like a, a fawn kind of creature mm-hmm. who uh, who gets into a he has he has beef with Apollo, right? He, yeah, uh, that they for some reason have a contest of playing music. I believe is that mm-hmm. right? Yeah and Apollo wins and uh and whichever whichever contestant wins gets to do whatever he wants to to the other one and I guess what Apollo wants to do to this poor satyr <laughs> is flay
0: him alive. It's um you know it it you see this a lot in in Greek mythology, right? You have an individual who challenges a god to, or accept a god accepts a god's challenge mm-hmm. to some sort of a, a competition, or they just end up in a in some sort of a spat with a deity. Right? Always a bad move. Devil went down to Georgia. Yeah, like Devil went down to Georgia is like like that actually ends up okay. Yeah. But if that if the Devil went down to Georgia was a was an, an ancient Greek myth, he would have you know wound John up F- half-fiddle F- 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 or something. Yeah. yeah. The, the devil would play him with a fiddle. <laughs> right. That was, it was, that was the, that was how their cosmology worked. So this particular painting is one of several that uh, Titian uh, produced later in life that displays horrific scenes of murder or misery. Um, and he cre- recreated all of these with uh, intentional imperfect detail. Mm-hmm. So I g- guess the idea here is that the mind can't quite take it all in because it's just so grisly, just so depressing, just so mind-rendingly awful that things kind of blur out. Yeah, I think it accomplishes that well. Now, there are
1: obviously different ways that paintings can have an unfinished style, and I think this one is considered unfinished just in the level of sort of resolution of detail. Right. It's blurry. It's not like there's a missing corner or something, but there's stuff like that, too.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and another key example, and one of my favorites uh, from the piece, because it definitely gets into some discussions here we can have about uh, literature and film and other uh, media, but it, it involves another way Work by Titian, uh, and what we have here is an unfinished portrait of an unknown lady and her daughter, probably members of Titian's family, uh, but it was it was left un- incomplete at the time of his death. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> what happened? Well, uh, this particular painting was sitting around, and then. Um, Somebody came along and decided to finish it for him. <laughs> somebody who maybe wasn't as good an artist as Yeah, Ditchin. definitely not as good. good but you can, I'm, I, I'm probably thinking of it you know, as a, you know, somebody else working in a studio, and underling, came along and says, oh, well, look, this is almost completed, um, but I feel pretty talented. I'm going to take this, complete it, and then I can sell it, right? Then it's going to be a value. Right. And so... The painting was altered in the studio to depict uh, Tobias and the archangel Raphael. Um, so it, it you should look up pictures of this. Yeah, the
1: original one is kind of striking. The uh, the the redone one. What could you? Say? It looks insipid.
0: Yeah, it it clearly even to untrained you know mostly untrained eyes uh, such as my own, you can tell that there's a big dip in quality. It goes from, you know, looking like an unfinished masterpiece to uh yeah, just Precious another painting. Yeah, yeah, just another painting of an angel and a boy uh just standing there. Uh so it wasn't until the second half of the 20th century uh that they were able to restore and this is kind of this is kind of crazy, restore the completed work to its original Incomplete status, mm-hmm. um, which is which is lovely, because what does this say about our de- first of all about our desire to complete works, but then. About our feelings regarding a completed work, especially if it's completed by someone other than the
1: artist. Well, I feel like this is very different between an artist who is still living and an artist who has been dead for a while. Because once an artist has been dead for a while and becomes part of art history, I think maybe that there is a different motivation in interacting with each of their works. It's less to experience a single completed work but to get a complete and true view of the artist's career, in yeah. which case the unfinished work that's a true reflection of the artist is more a part of this completeness paradigm we want than a, a truly finished portrait that doesn't look like that artist's style.
0: Yeah, because in many cases an incomplete painting, it, it gives us insight into their technique, uh, how they went about creating these uh, particular paintings, like what did they complete first? Yeah. What were the, did they do the background? Did they The foreground. Did they do some sort of uh, you know scaffolding uh, Mm -hmm. blueprint underneath it? You know, it's it's all tremendously interesting uh, when you're trying to to figure out who this artist was and how they conducted their craft.
1: Yeah, Uh, but but tying into what I just said, I mean, that sort of lets us know that there are different levels of completeness we seek. Do Mm -hmm. you want completeness at the individual uh, works? scale, or do you want completeness at the artist's biography scale, right. or do you want completeness from a historical period's understanding scale? You know, do you want to see this as part of the Italian Renaissance type? I, I don't know what all the eras of paintings are, but mm-hmm. uh, you, you see what I mean?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, like, a, a literary example that I can't help but come to, uh, is that of, uh, Frank Herbert's Dune Saga. Oh boy. Uh, which we discussed a little bit I was bit hoping in our, we'd our talk Dune Dune about episodes. Dune today. <laughs> <laughs> so this, uh, the, the Dune Saga was of course left incomplete, uh, at the time of Frank Herbert's death. Now, how many books did Herbert himself write? Oh, what is it, five or six? Uh, I don't have the list in front of me and I, they they begin to kind of bleed together for me towards the end. Uh uh-huh. but uh he he wrote several uh but then yeah, the saga itself was left incomplete. He had notes and then his son Brian Herbert and co-author Kevin J Anderson, they picked up the work uh years after his death and finished the saga based on his notes. And of course, wrote a ton of other Dune notes. I mean, at this point, Brian Herbert has written. Uh, Brian Herbert and Kevin J. Anderson have written more Dune books than than Frank Herbert ever wrote, huh. um, which is which is interesting. But it's also one of these areas that's very dis- divisive because you have Dune fans that you know refer to themselves as orthodox Dune fans. They're only going to read the the Frank books, only the Prophet himself, right? But then you have uh, but then you have plenty of fans who embrace. The uh, Brian Herbert, Kevin J. Anderson books, and this expanded view of the universe, but but yeah, at the at at the at the heart of it, like the complete saga is not a Frank Herbert creation; it's a Frank Herbert, Brian Herbert, Kevin J. Anderson creation. Like it becomes <laughs> a, a different thing, right? Uh-huh. By by completing it, they have sort of transformed it into something else.
1: But also, is a franchise ever completed? That's true. I yeah. I mean I think of our age of Star Wars. Mm-hmm. What if uh George Lucas were to have gotten to a point where he said, "Okay, maybe imagine an alternate universe. George Lucas makes 9 Star Wars movies or whatever okay. and then he says, "Okay, we're done." <laughs> um, I would the fans be okay with that or would they keep wanting more Star Wars stuff? Well I mean it seems to me that now that we're in Disney's hands, there is going to be Star Wars until the end of time. Right. There will never not be new Star Wars stuff.
0: Yeah, but, but yeah, what what would have happened if he was if he just did the three movies and said, I'm done? Yeah. Or what if or what if something had happened and he didn't get something past to Empire Strikes Back? Like what if Empire Strikes Back had been a bomb? Just nobody, nobody loved it at the time, and we only grew to love it, say, in recent years. We said, "Hey, this is a masterpiece." Uh-huh. What well, I wonder what the next installment would have been like? What would have happened if we had actually followed uh, Luke through and and you know actually figured out what kind of uh, comeback the uh, the rebels were going to have? Lucas's son would write it. And then, uh... <laughs> Uh,
1: why, why, it often does seem like it's a hereditary enterprise. Didn't the same thing happen with Tolkien after Tolkien's death? Didn't his son take
0: over? Well, I, that's an interesting example to bring up, and I, you know, I don't I don't know a lot about that because my Tolkien experience is basically um, basically revolves around just the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit. But I understand that a lot of um, of uh, his uh, of, of the, the subsequent work has been sort of a mix of. Like it's been a little bit literary. It's kind of like commentating on mm-hmm. it. Well, uh, yeah, I think he's edited
1: together. He like yeah. took some of his father's notes and edited them into books or something.
0: Yeah, but then there was that. Uh, there was like a complete saga that came out, and I, I never read it. But it was it the Children of Húrin or something? So that <laughs> I have know, no right? idea. Yeah. But certainly that you could see that as a as a as a as an example of this. Though it would have been more, I think, clearly an example if say he you know he had not actually finished the lord of the rings and someone had to come along and finish it and we we do find other examples of fantasy sagas uh uh ending up incomplete uh, robert jordan's wheel of time series for example uh was actually completed by brandon sanderson uh and this was by the deceased author's design like he picked the individual to finish these books and um, i have not read them uh but i was reading about them and i was actually talking to our uh, coworker uh, tyler who has read them and uh it seems like most of the reactions to this are far more positive there's less uh schism among the uh the wheel of time fans yeah um- most people say the new author's style, you know, shines through, and some applaud his increased, has increased uh, pace, his willingness to tie up loose ends, which of course is important when you're trying to finish a saga. Right. Uh And some I point out that maybe he didn't have the the knack for descriptions and detail that Jordan had, but for the most part, it seems like everyone embraced this completion of the incomplete work. Well, I know what all of you are yelling at your ear earbuds right now. <laughs> Gurm, right. Oh, yeah. It's Game all about Gurm. Yeah, what's gonna happen with uh with Game of Thrones, A Song of Ice and Fire, George R. R. Martin's currently incomplete uh series of novels, and the slightly more complete HBO series uh-huh. based on those novels. Yeah, so the show
1: the TV show, you probably already know this, but the TV show Game of Thrones is actually outpaced uh Martin's novels, it's mm-hmm. ahead of the novels that it's based on. He has not released the one that he was planning on releasing that would contain some of the same stuff as the current season of the show. Yeah, Winds of Winter, I believe. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, so, how old is George R. R. Martin?
0: Uh, he is 67 years old. And he's um, taken
1: about 10,000 yeah. years to write each book. So uh, people have, I mean, not to be, I, I wish him great health and long life, but uh, people do speculate, like, what if he dies before he finishes writing these books? Yeah. Yeah, and everybody wants to know the end.
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean, the the reverse is also true. I feel with any book or film series, what if I die before right. I get to complete watching or reading this thing? You know, uh-huh. I mean, so, so it's it's coming from that place of us craving completeness in our works but yeah if he if he dies before completing the books uh, will fans uh, you know embrace whoever the the chosen writer is to, to finish it uh, how will we feel about the the, the, the the HBO series as it completes the saga before the books what if what if the what if the uh, the, the book series remains incomplete? Um, you know, for the foreseeable future. What if, uh, artificial intelligence has to finish it later <laughs> on? You know? Oh, it won't do a very good job, will it? Uh, well, I mean, who knows? Maybe. Maybe. As long as it can make good, solid descriptions of Westeros food while, uh, you know, laying out a bunch of political details, I think it can do a good job. Uh huh. I I am
1: firmly of the opinion that any artificial intelligence good enough to write an entertaining and compelling work of fiction will eradicate the human species.
0: (laughs) Now, um, this being said, you know, there are plenty of examples of incomplete works out there, and, and most of them, it seems like. We're pretty okay with them. We're probably getting more into that uh, territory of an incomplete work by a master who's been dead for a while. But uh, some of the works that come to mind, uh, 120 Days of Sodom uh, by the Marquis de Sade, uh, Billy Budd, The Mysterious Stranger, uh, The Pale King by David Foster Wallace. Mm-hmm. Um, the Mysterious Stranger, of course, being um, Mark Twain's uh, story. And I believe there are like three different drafts. Um, all of them are kind of incomplete and you can sort of cobble together a finished product from that, but it's still ultimately incomplete. You know, Charles
1: Dickens, The Mystery of Edwin Drood, that's an unfinished work of fiction, uh, oh, yeah. that, uh, and it, it's crazy that it's unfinished because it's a mystery. Oh, so, so nobody knows how, how it ends. You don't know the solution to the mystery. Well, in the musical version of The Mystery <laughs> of Edwin Drood, it actually allows the audience to select the ending. So the audience gets to vote on uh-huh. who the who the murderer turns out to be?
0: Huh. And then, what about music? Are there musical? Uh, is there a musical uh, equivalent to an, an either an incomplete or intentionally incomplete work? Well, yeah, I think there are. I mean, I, I
1: I'm a big fan of the uh, going back to my '90s catalog. The album B Thousand by Guided by Voices. Mm-hmm. A lot of the early Guided by Voices songs, uh, they, they sound like half of a song. Like so, the song will come on, and it plays one verse and one chorus, and that was about you know seventy five seconds long, and then it moves on to the next song, and it never comes back. Huh. That's just it. That's
0: okay. all there is. And it, the, this was published during the artist's lifetime. Oh right? yeah, I mean, so it's it's not a matter of them of someone That's coming just, along and saying, oh, here are some recordings; they're unfinished, uh-huh. but let's make a few bucks off of it. It's just what the song is. Huh. Okay. So that would that would seem to be more of an intentionally incomplete um, mode of creation then yeah sort but of it, like the sketch as art I think that it creates a good effect I mean
1: one reason I think I love that album is that no song gets tiresome no, none of them yeah. last long enough to, for you to like really say okay I've heard the chorus four times now mm-hmm. it, it just doesn't happen huh. and so a- every time a song's over you kind of wish it was still going on
0: interesting yeah and i'm sure that uh, our listeners out there will come up with uh, numerous examples of unfinished uh, art fiction music etc to share with us Uh, we're going to take a quick break and when we come back we're going to get into the psychology of this why our brains while our why our minds crave that complete work all
1: right we're back so robert it why do we crave completion and closure? Why do we have to see the end of a thing?
0: Well, that's the big question, right? I mean, because as we've discussed, our lives are these unfinished stories. But then we read these finished stories and then we sort of think about our own lives in terms of a story. And we imagine ourselves as the the, the central character in this story. Mm-hmm. Um, one uh one description that i think uh, helps shine a little light on it is that from a cognitive point of view we are all quote information seeking prediction loving cognitive systems so this gets into the whole idea that we're trying to survive in this world and in order to do so we want to understand our our situation right we want to know what came before we need to know what comes after so this particular quote comes from Flora Lichtman, uh, co author of Annoying, The Science of What Bugs Us. And uh, and this is a book that that deals with a number of just, you know, all the various pet peeves and what sort of the the psychological or scientific underpinnings Uh for them happens to be. But uh, one thing that she particularly brings up is that overhearing another person's phone call is inherently engaging and mindlessly irritating because we're tuning into an incomplete conversation. Oh, yeah. We can only hear part of it, and then we have to just maddeningly guess at what the rest of it consists of. Indeed, like what the point of the entire call uh, happened to be to begin with.
1: Yeah, so that's crazy because I I would tend to think that because of that incompleteness, hearing half of a phone call is way more distracting than hearing a complete. complete conversation going on in the room with you with both parties. And I wonder if that's borne out.
0: Well, Indeed, yeah. There's a Cornell University study that actually looked into this idea, uh, and they, they conducted it by taking a, a conversation, garbling half the words so that the, uh, the subjects only heard half of the conversation. Mm-hmm. And they found that overhearing half a conversation, a half-a-log, as they referred to it, uh, is more distracting than other kinds of conversations because we're missing that other side of the story, and we can't predict the flow of the conversation. Because if you overhear somebody just, you know, a couple people talking about a TV show you don't watch, say, you you can very quickly realize, oh, they're just talking about this episode of the show. I know exactly what they're talking about it and I, about and I don't care. Yeah, I can I can see exactly how this is going to play out. But what if you just hear? Oh, yeah. Yeah. He, he dies in that episode. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, well, what if, ep- what what, episode? what yeah. show? Did I, have a, is it a show I watched? Did they just spoil me? Uh-huh. Do, it, do I dare listen more? Because what if it's a show I haven't watched yet? Right. Uh, and then you just start screaming, no spoilers, no spoilers, uh, like a madman. <laughs> but yeah, so our, on a very basic level, our brains require complete information because, you know, it, at risk of getting into, uh, um, imperfect uh, comparisons to a computer, our brains are that hypercomputer that that needs data input in order to choose its next move. And if we're getting incomplete data in there, it just starts going a little haywire, right? Yeah.
1: Uh, so another psychology concept that I think might be relevant to our, our relationship with incompleteness and unfinished things is something we've actually talked about a little bit on the show before, the Zygarnik effect, which we we mentioned it briefly in our two-part episode about the science of Tetris. Ah, yes. And it played into that because we were, uh, I think, picking up on... Somebody else had made this point, and we were, we were sort of repeating the idea that... Um, Tetris has something to do with the Zygarnik effect. Now, the Zygarnik effect, uh, it's a phenomenon that was identified by the Russian psychologist Bluma v. Zygarnik. Uh, she lived uh, 1900 to 1988, and it posits that we tend to have better recall for unfinished tasks than we do for finished ones. Uh, and so the of course, that would figure into Tetris because Tetris is never finished. There's no end of the game. It is a perpetually unfinished
0: job. Yeah, you just play to, till, till extinction, basically. Right. Yeah. Playing to.
1: <laughs> so yeah, what do Tetris and gambling have in common?
0: <laughs>
1: There's only one way for it to be over and it's when you cannot continue. Yeah,
0: when you have lost.
1: <laughs> uh, so yeah, so a standard evaluation of the Zygarnik effect would go something like this. You get test subjects and you ask them to complete a number of mental and or physical jobs. For example, solving jigsaw puzzles or mm-hmm. stringing beads. So if they're solving jigsaw puzzles, there might be details on the jigsaw puzzle that they're solving. Maybe it's a picture of a bunch of dinosaurs riding on jet skis or, you know, whatever it is. And in half of the tasks, the subject will be allowed to finish. And in the other half the subject will be interrupted and asked to move on to another task before the one they're currently working on is completed. And then they get asked to remember details about both types of jobs. Mm-hmm. And you can express this differential recall as an IC ratio, the number of details remembered about incomplete tasks versus the number of details remembered about completed tasks. And Zygarnik herself found this ratio to be more than 1.0. People had a better memory for incomplete and unfinished things. But Why? Uh, so a number of different interpretations have been offered throughout the years that, you know, people have said that, uh, ambition plays a role in the extent to which people have differential recall here. Uh, people posited, well, maybe interruption by the experimenter causes a feeling of irritation that heightens the emotion and that heightened emotion causes greater recall. Who, who knows exactly what it is? There are a lot of interpretations. But there have been many subsequent evaluations of this effect throughout the years which have uh, sort of complicated the picture because we don't always remember incompleted tasks better. So according to the Dictionary of Theories, Laws, and Concepts in Psychology by John A. uh studies have indicated that the Zygarnik effect is less likely to take place if the subject is, quote, ego involved in the task and more likely to take place if the subject thinks the task is ultimately possible of uh, possible to achieve uh, or possible to finish and uh, hillgard in 1966 found that the ic memory differential is short term like it lasts for only a period of less than 24 hours and apparently it also doesn't work for all types of tasks now, there's one study I looked at from 1991 by uh, uh, Seifert and Patilano called Memory for Incomplete Tasks, a Reexamination of the Zygarnik Effect. And so essentially that said that Zygarnik's original findings have been both replicated and not replicated by subsequent studies so that, that seems to suggest there's a sort of complex effect going on The different variables are interacting with it in different ways. Uh, and the results have been explained a lot of times in terms of social psychological variables but Seifert and uh, Patilano attempted to replicate these effects, adjusting variables uh, affecting cognitive problem solving like the nature of the interruption. What happens when somebody comes in and interrupts you, or the time spent during processing the job and the set size of the of the number of tasks. Uh, so in the first experiment they did, they found that in solving word problems, interruption after a short interval of active problem solving actually uh, led to better memory for completed tasks than uncompleted ones, actually the opposite of Zygarnik if you don't spend much time on the tasks. Okay. But this kind of makes sense, right? Uh uh intuitively, that sounds right to me. If I'm not spending much time on a problem, I'd remember the problem better if I finished it. Right. Uh, and, and they sort of acknowledge that, that. That seems kind of obvious, but all right. And the second experiment replicates Zygarnik. Uh, they found that uh, if you allow subjects to take as long as they need and then abandon problems they're unable to solve – It does hold that they have a better memory for the ones that they weren't able to complete. Uh, Thus, here's a piece of evidence that our recall is better for things, uh, for unfinished tasks that we gave up on than for unfinished tasks we were sort of ripped away from by circumstances. So I'd say the Zargarnik effect presents a complicated picture. It depends on the subject. It depends on the type of task. But another difference is that it applies to tasks Hmm. and uh, like problems to be solved or jobs to be completed. And I wonder if our relationship with art, fiction, music, et cetera, and the way we've been talking about is like this when we're the audience. Thus does the Zygarnik effect in any way, uh, have any sway over our participation with works of art?
0: Yeah, I, I can't help but but think that it does because on, on one hand I'm thinking about the experience of reading a book. Uh, so if you're just like a couple of pages into a book and you set it down. Yeah. Like generally it's pretty easy to not pick that book up again, to just leave it on the table or on the shelf. Right. But if you've read a half or, you know, or even, uh, you know, a good two thirds of the book, there's often that just maddening uh, compulsion to complete it, even if you're not digging it anymore. It's like I've put so much time into it. Yeah. I've got to finish it. Or I've encountered that with TV shows before. TV shows that you know go multiple seasons, and I'm not going to name any uh, in particular, but uh, but they go multiple seasons, and then you really are losing interest. But there are the remaining mysteries. There's you've got to know if they make it to their their destination, and you keep watching just out of the. The, the need to finish it. Yeah,
1: I, I can totally agree. I mean, I think uh, I'll call out one TV show. Okay. Lost put its hooks in me this way. I I This is a controversial position. A lot of people who like the show will probably want to tear my head off. But I don't think Lost was actually all that great of a show. OK, you know, I, I think that it had a lot of storytelling problems uh, and some of its characterization was kind of shallow and and obvious looking back on it. But it had its hooks in me. I couldn't stop. I had to keep going to see the mm-hmm. completion of this narrative because they had set up tons of unfinished problems in it. The show was just a litany of uh, of setting up a problem that was not resolved And, and you'd continue thinking that it would be resolved. I'll leave that up to you to, if you ever want to watch the show to find out if these things are resolved or not, but I will just say that personally I, I found myself very frustrated in the end.
0: You know, it's interesting to think of this in terms of TV because the, the, the classic TV model, right, uh-huh. is very cyclical. It, uh, the classic sitcom formula involves a complete reset at the end of each episode. So there's there's no yeah. zygarnic reason to come back and watch it the next week, yeah. except that you're going to get the more or less the same experience. experience everything's going to reset to the same place, and there's virtually no overarching narrative that you need to concern yourself with.
1: Yeah, though I think we should also be aware of the possibility that we are just misapplying this concept and that it really has to do more with jobs you're working on than, mm-hmm. than participation with narratives. But I don't know. I mean, I, I'd be interested to hear from you psychologists out there. Yeah. Like, do you, do you think the Zygarnik effect, in any way, to whatever extent it does hold true for humans, applies to our participation with works of art and, and external
0: narratives? Indeed. Now, At the same time, it's interesting as we're discussing all this, as we're taking in incomplete stories, complete stories, cyclical and linear stories, Um, the brain is writing tons of incomplete stories itself. Of course. Uh, According to philosopher, cognitive scientist Daniel Dennett, uh, the human brain, as a... computational device, is constantly processing all sorts of information at different rates and in different locations. And this produces uh, what he refers to as multiple incomplete narrative drafts. Yeah and these are all just continually synthesized into a coherent but highly unstable narrative at equilibrium and it's within this unstable narrative that we devote our sense of uh, of i we uh, we develop our sense of i and self yeah i i
1: really love uh, daniel dennett's analogies mm-hmm. for cognitive uh, cognitive philosophy and philosophy of mind i feel like they they are often very helpful
0: yeah it's, it's it's interesting to, 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 to look at this argument, and especially after just talking about TV, uh-huh. to think of our basic experience of ourself and, and our uh, immediate reality is like a flimsy TV <laughs> narrative that's cobbled together from a number of bad scripts yeah that, that all land on the uh the showrunner's desk and they're like all right a little of this one a little of that one uh let's run with this script joe and then and then everyone's saying well this doesn't really make sense uh, there's some big story problems here well, who is this main character uh, it seems that on one hand he thinks he's uh, some sort of a hero but then he's this and as well and just run with it just let's film it and call it a day uh-huh. and that's kind of what we do
1: but it's sort of like a script for a lost episode, isn't it? It's got tons. Of, it's got a polar bear there, and you're like, surely I'm going to find out where this thing came
0: from. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, at the end, it is still this continual journey, Um and uh, and I mean, maybe that's part of it too. We we like our stories, we like our fiction the most when it is in the journey phase, when it's incomplete. Yeah, uh, but has the promise of completion.
1: Well, how many examples can you think of where uh, where there's a narrative that's as much fun once you finished it as it was to be in the middle of it
0: it's a rarity i mean that's yeah. the the work that's the the mark of a a really great work of fiction right is that you know all the twists and turns but you just want to experience it again because you want to experience that world you want to experience those characters yeah um because there are plenty of lesser works uh, i guess you could say and certainly that's uh that's very subjective but there are lesser works of fiction out there that, once you've once you've taken the journey, once you've ridden the ride, you know the twists and turns. You have no desire to ride it again because it's just going to feel kind of flimsy afterwards. Mm-hmm. Uh, though sometimes that first ride is amazing, <laughs> but it's just impossible to uh, to experience it again quite the same way. I'm thinking particularly of of films uh, and works where you end up with a very unreliable uh, narrator you have sort of, sort of like a without getting into spoilers like a memento uh experience or a fight club experience mm-hmm. or um uh, what was the uh the switch uh switchblade romance uh, horror film that came out years ago the french one high tension yes high tension um great film the first viewing, uh, that's all I'll say. Oh, okay. Yeah. But that great, that first viewing was, uh, was tremendous. So, uh, yeah, great film in my opinion. Just not the kind of ride you want to do over and over again. Uh huh. But back to incompleteness, completeness. We, we crave a linear story and we have a tendency to uh, chafe at anything that doesn't give us that. The, the offending work might be a nonlinear book or nonlinear film. It might be, uh, an intentionally incomplete or in, unfinished work uh University of California Santa Barbara professor H Porter Abbott calls the preference for linear storytelling a fundamental operating procedure of the mind. Uh-huh. So essentially it breaks down like this. At 3 years of, a- of age our brains begin to com- compartmentalize sensory information from the world around us into an ongoing narrative uh which each of us uh then places ourselves at the center. It's that uh, the kind of story that the same thing that Daniel Dennett uh, was discussing earlier. Mm-hmm. And uh there's a there's an interesting pa- paper that looks at this 2015 Yeshiva University paper the power of and of the picture how narrative film captures attention and disrupts goal pursuit and this was uh, published in uh, PLOS one so in this particular experiment participants were uh, th- they viewed either an intact version of an engaging 20 minute film Bang Your Dead 1961 by Alfred Hitchcock or a version of the same film with the scenes presented out of order. Okay.
1: And so they called this the contiguous condition versus the non-contiguous condition. Right. Non-contiguous yeah. meaning out of order. Exactly.
0: Yeah. I don't I don't think both are available on the DVD release, but maybe the Blu-ray, <laughs> right? So that they were in this experiment, they weren't told that this was about, you know, narratives and our experience. They were told that this was about gun violence in films and then they had to raise their hands anytime someone said gun in the film. So those who view the linear film, they were far less likely to follow these orders because they were essentially just ensorcelled by the fiction.
1: Yeah, that makes perfect sense to me.
0: Yeah, so the, the, these results illustrate uh, the idea that uh, that we have an innate preference for linear narrative, uh, though there is, of course, a, you know an artful balance to maintain there. Because we can all think of nonlinear narratives that work to varying degrees, sometimes right. exceptionally well. And, of course, I, I think that the very fact of
1: linear narrative that's so compelling is that it promises a conclusion. Right. That's exactly the thing that makes it seem linear.
0: Yeah, you want to see the the hero win. You want to see the villain get their comeuppance. Yeah, the the line segment
1: is the shortest distance between two points. If you don't have a second point, you're in trouble. Right.
0: (laughs) Now, all of this being said, uh, we have visual works of art that have uh, movement and story to them. And yet, we also have works that represent decisive segments of an incomplete linear narrative. And the viewer has to sort of, has to fill them out with uh, his or her own mind, uh, deciding how we came to this place and where we go from there. Mm-hmm. Um, like, one example that comes to mind here, and this is not something that I saw at the Met, um, is, um, uh Ilya Repin's haunting uh, 1885 masterpiece Ivan the Terrible and his son Ivan you've seen this one before right I don't know if
1: I have seen it before maybe I have but I'm looking at it now and wow yeah it's a uh, it that is some pathos in a painting
0: yeah it's it's uh it's Ivan the Terrible having brained his son with, uh a, believe, a, a, a hammer or a scepter. I can't remember the, the exact, because it's based on a historical occurrence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's just staring up. He's cradling his bleeding adult son and uh, just staring with these haunted eyes into the middle distance. So... We, we know that it depicts a, an historical occurrence. We, we know that this depicts the 1581 murder of, of Ivan's own son. And we know how to fit it within a rough, linear narrative. But it's not like we have a sequence of paintings filling out the rest of the narrative. We have this one potent, potent segment, and it forces us to envision everything else. And we see that in works of fiction, too, right? Works right. that capture our imagination with an incomplete glimpse of a, a wider, maybe weirder world. That's often, I think, it certainly is for me, I assume it is for other people, a, a point
1: of specific pleasure in fiction is the the sense that you are uh, getting a feeling for a much broader world or a much broader story through a kind of keyhole, yeah, a, a little narrative peephole into the world and uh, that that feeling of there being so much more is is one of the great pleasures of fiction
0: yeah so I guess uh, like some of my closing questions here um, for, for this segment would be: you know, How do all of these factor into our understanding of incomplete or unfinished works? Why are some fragments sort of ideal mental seeds, while others are larval forms that we have to to grow? Why are some partial works sacrosanct, and why are others why are others things that just must be completed by skilled hands at all costs? Yeah. And granted, there's you know there, there's consumer uh, elements here. There are market forces involved. Uh, as well as just personal taste but uh, but there yeah there's this interesting division between the, the works that that can and should remain incomplete and those that just have to be fleshed out. We have to have the complete specimen
1: I think it's a fascinating question and I don't know if we've come across the answer today I mean it's it's obvious that our, our brains are very strongly driven by narrative narrative is very highly motivated by the desire for completion and closure. Uh, that uh, that we do tend to via the Zygarnik effect. Whether that applies truly to fiction and art, I mean, it's certainly clear that we tend to return mentally
0: to things that are unfinished. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Well, it's an open question, and we certainly invite our listeners to uh, to uh, attend to it as well.
1: Yeah, and if you feel compelled that there absolutely must be an ending to the story of the the three brothers in the prison, feel free to write that and send it in.
0: All right, so there you have it. Uh, incomplete, complete works, unfinished works. Let us know what you think. Uh, as always, you can uh, seek us out at stufftoblowyourmind.com. That is our homepage. That's where you'll find all the blog posts, podcasts, videos, links out to our social media accounts, such as Facebook and Twitter. And then, Joe, if they want to make direct contact with us, perhaps with an ending to your uh, story fragment from the beginning, how can they get in touch with us?
1: Well, of course, as always, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com.